Hello, Betsy. How are you? I'm doing great, Brian. How are you? Oh, I'm great. It's like old times here. We're here and we are uh, across each other from a, a glass window in a studio in St. Louis, another podcast. So it, it's uh, missed you. We've we rebooted a few weeks ago. And uh, for those of you who have listened to uh, the podcast of CHA, Betsy was one of my co-hosts for many years right after Marianne Steiner retired. So it's great to have you back in the studio. Thanks. Yeah, I like the new format and um, it's it's good to be back. Yeah, so we're in a few minutes, we are going to uh, talk... Uh, with a couple of professors who wrote a really interesting article. And the topic is Writing Your Health System's Racial Autobiography. You ready to go? I am, yep. Let's do it. This is Health Calls, the podcast of the Catholic Health Association of the United States. I'm your host, Brian Reardon. And as I just mentioned, we are talking for this episode about Writing Your Health System's Racial Autobiography, Joining me for the first part of the conversation is Betsy Taylor. She is editor of Health Progress with the Catholic Health Association. In a few minutes, we're going to have Professor Therese Lysalt and Professor Sherry Bartlett-Brown join us. But before we do that, um, Betsy, let's set some context. Uh, It's been two years now since our members began signing what we are calling the We Are Called Pledge, which is Confronting Racism by Achieving Health Equity. And one of the things that we've tried to do is is storytelling around that work. And so health progress has played a really important role in that. Yeah, um, Brian, you know, I think um, a lot of this goes back to me for the spring of 2020 when um, we were putting the finishing touches on a health progress issue related to racism and um, health disparities and then realized we were going to have to redo much of the issue due to the pandemic. Um, As many listeners will know, we soon realized those issues really um, were dovetailing with one another, that the pandemic was showing um, us so much about health inequities and issues that um, we long knew about, but that seriously needed to be addressed. Um, And so we were able to combine those two topics in that issue. Um, And I think as CHA committed to We Are Called, it it was an organizational um, involvement. And so it wasn't just our mission department or our advocacy department. It was all of us really looking at our roles and saying, what can we do to advance this important work? Um, so the publication's really taken a good hard look at that. We've had stories um, both from local markets and nationally. Um, and we have a couple of good stories related to it in this issue as well. And what has struck you about the um, articles that have been contributed by our members and by our, you know, partners? Um, obviously, they've had different approaches to how we confront racism, how we achieve health equity. But any sort of overarching theme that kind of sticks out to you in the, in the many articles that we've published over the last two years on this topic? I think the overall commitment to it is impressive. I think the way that people can get at it um, in many different aspects of the work is important. Um, So for this issue, uh, Julie Trocchio takes up community benefit and uh, walks through some tips from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation about ways that you can um, build trusting relationships in communities, ways you can make sure um, you're sort of broadening who you're listening to. there's a there's another nice article about um, a community collaborative in Southwest Texas um, that is uh, in San Antonio, um, where they were a whole bunch of different organizations came together to talk about um, improving access and mental health services. So a lot of it gets to sort of CHA's underlying themes, which is um, we're strong, we're better together. That if people partner and bring their strengths to the, to the table and make sure they're sort of listening broadly, that that can really help in the work. 
and that's that's a theme that stuck out to me was the um, the ability to listen to you know what the needs are of the community. I think one of the articles, and this is the one we're going to talk about, it was appeared in the spring 2022, so a few months ago in Health Progress. The article was entitled "Looking Backward to Move Forward: Writing Your System's Racial Autobiography." Um, what was your take on that article before we bring in the two authors? I thought that it was a really interesting approach because I think in so much of the equity work we're doing, it's really important to look at the um, sort of the racial and societal um, roots of of where we are today. Um, And I liked, um, as you know, um, Therese Lysot, who's going to be one of our guests today, um, has long been sort of a a friend of Catholic healthcare. She's very um, known to CHA, has worked directly with the organization. Um, We are very excited to have Sherry um, authoring this as well. And um, it just seemed like I really like articles when they are useful to people, when they don't, you know, throw stones to throw stones, but say, here's something we should be talking about. Here's why. Here's why it's important for the work moving forward. Yeah, it was powerful. And I think, you know, a couple of words that jumped out at me was the uh, need to acknowledge and atone for the past. And I think a lot of people are struggling with that and, you know, looking back at the history of, of racism and slavery. And so hitting that head on in the article, I think, was really powerful. So let's jump to it. Let's bring in um, our two authors. They are Therese Lysalt. She's a professor at Loyola University in Chicago and Sherry Bartlett Brown. She is a professor at Tennessee State University. Let me start say, by introducing or welcoming Therese. Hi, Therese. Hi, Brian. Hi, Betsy. Good to hear your voice. And Sherry, welcome. Thank you, Brian. And thank you, Betsy, for having us today. We're excited to be here. So let me get to the first question. And that is, you know, what prompted this article? You asked some students to write uh, racial autobiographies. So can you talk a little bit about the genesis of the article? Kind of like Betsy said, you know, in the spring of 2020, at the beginning of the pandemic, it became clear to me in a new way. You know, I've had sort of these pieces in the past, but between COVID and George Floyd, you know, this intersection mm-hmm. of racism and uh, healthcare in the U.S. Uh, just became alive in a new way. And uh, as we had recently started, that very semester, we had started our doctorate in healthcare mission leadership program at Loyola. And so I felt, you know, a fiduciary responsibility to my students to um, open up a conversation for them on Theology, race, and Catholic healthcare. So we, so I put together a class on that topic for spring 2021, and in doing so, it seemed to me that uh, out of uh, George Floyd, especially, there was a lot of great energy and really important movement uh, across Catholic healthcare, especially in terms of looking at how can we move the needle on health disparities, um, these really intractable differences in health outcomes that we've seen for centuries um, Mm -hmm. in the United States? Um, And how can we start to move the needle on um, diversity questions within our organizations? And those, of course, are really important. But there seemed to me to be one more piece. And that is kind of the question, more like an epidemiological question of how did we get here? Right. Right. If we're going to solve the problem, it's really important to know what were the factors that created the problem. Otherwise, your solutions might not work. And in anti-racism training generally for individuals, a really important step, first step, is writing your own racial autobiography, right? Because one of the ways that racism works is by keeping the racist 
structures that we're all embedded in uh, really invisible for white people. You know, so the practice of just saying, where did I grow up? You know, was my neighborhood redlined without me knowing? Uh, who are the folks in my life that might have formed me in racist ways or or not, right? Who might have countered that? So kind of stepping back and taking stock of how we got to where we are individually. And it seems to me that for mission leaders and ethicists who are primarily the folks in my courses uh, and on our programs, you know, they're leading organizations, uh, Catholic organizations around questions of identity. And, you know, we talk about Catholic hospitals as, you know, as persons, as agents, as uh, being able to enact Catholic identity, being able to cooperate with evil, you know, so we talk about them in these personal ways. So it seemed to me that it would be a really interesting exercise for them to set, you know, to kind of start researching the histories of their, their hospitals and their systems around some of these questions uh, you know, in these the various really different locations and geographies across the United States. Yeah, and the Jesuits. Um, you mentioned Georgetown University. I mean, other Catholic organizations have done that. So, was that sort of a, a one sort of template, or were you did you take some learnings from from those um, historical lookbacks by other Catholic organizations? Yeah. So they, those had also just been starting, right? We talk about those in the article. Uh, so. As usual, the sisters were out in front. A number of um, women's religious organizations have actually started doing this work a number of years ago. And then in the 2020 timeframe, um, Georgetown University, of course, admitted, right, a really, really serious sort of uh, involvement in the sale, the ownership and sales of enslaved persons to, you know, keep their organization going. Um, and so having that at the front of public consciousness, both of those witnesses seemed to me to be a good model for uh, Catholic hospitals. And Sherry, when you were working with students, what was the reaction of students? Uh, and maybe, you know, Therese, you can weigh in on this as well. Were they enthusiastic? Was there some hesitancy? What was the reaction when, when this project was put forth to your students? Well, I was actually one of Therese's students, not for this aspect of the project, but I was one of many of her former students who joined um, this class just on a kind of casual basis as, a, you know, sort of auditing the class as it were for um, conversations about what it takes to dismantle racism. And so we did uh, reading around that subject and we sort of formed a, a, a learning community around that topic within her class. And Everyone in the course was very excited uh, to look deeper at this question, but also wasn't, you know, people weren't sure exactly how to approach it. And so the system autobiography, racial autobiography, seemed like a really creative and thought-provoking way to address the issue. And since I'm a historian, it really resonated with me because I just, of course, believe that, you know, we go back into the past to help us understand more about the present. And it just seemed like a perfect opportunity to encourage the mission leaders in the class to take a deeper dive into the history of their organizations. And as they started contacting health systems, um, was did they run into some resistance? Was there sort of like, oh, we don't want to talk about it? I mean, how did that play out? Yeah, I am. Um... You know, my students are all really great and, you know, they're all very uh, eager to go do whatever I tell them. And so <laughs> off they went to do this. 
uh, rather impossible task to do in a, you know, like one month period or whatever they had for their assignment. Uh, but it was really eye opening. Right. And uh, on a, a whole number of levels, because, um, uh, uh, you know, our, again, our students come from lots of different systems across the country, big systems, little systems. And so they had various experiences. The ones we pull out some like common experiences in the article. Uh, but I would say that almost all of them did run into silence. Right. This was one of the probably the uh, the greatest area of commonality that they identified was this sort of culture of silence around race, either in their historical record, right? So they went in, I said, go to your archives, see what you can find. And, you know, a lot of them came back and said, hmm, you know, there's quote unquote, nothing to find, hmm. right? There's no photographs of people of color. Uh, there's no mention of race, even though some of these hospitals were like right in the middle of, you know, locations of racial strife, you know, historical sorts of events. Some people, not all, but some people, you know, they went to their archivists and the archivists were like, you know, we're not talking about that. Or some of their supervisors were like, yeah, you know, we don't really want to emphasize that too much. And I, and I think that really surprised most of them. Was there any sort of strategy to persuade them to maybe say, you know, this is something you do want to talk about. I don't know if, if, if there was any tips you gave to the, the students working on this to say, I don't know how persistent they were if someone said, yeah, I don't really want to talk about it. But did, did you have a way to kind of go back and say, this is this is why it is important? I didn't at this point, right? Because they were doing this in a pretty short period of time and it was new, right? They, we were making up the roadmap. Um, I think now that we've gone through this, right, we've said, oh, this might be, you know, an area that you run into um, where you meet some resistance. And that was one of the reasons why, you know, as we were reflecting on uh, the the narratives that they wrote as a whole, Sherry and I, you know, one of our conclusions was that, you know, the person doing this work really should probably be somebody from outside the system, right? Because you do also get into those sorts of conflict of interest issues if you're, you know, mm -hmm. if, if you're employed by the system. Uh, but also the importance of leadership. I mean, so out of the research, you know, one of the things we found or one of the things the students found was that leadership of an organization was really crucial in moving an organization one way or the other, either in a sort of, you know, entrenching down practices of segregation or pressing through uh, in anti-racist ways. And I think even today, that's important, right? So to go into the archives, you know, whoever's going to do it needs the imprimatur of system leadership or hospital leadership so that, you know, someone's not going in as a lone researcher trying to, you know, find painful information, right? Yeah. It's part of a larger project and a large, larger narrative. Sherry, you touched on this about the importance of, of sort of looking back and informing work that's being done today. Can you go a little deeper on that? And, and what, again, advice would you have to a health system that's maybe on the fence about, well, you know, why is this important? Why should we do that? What what would you tell them and why this is so important to do this autobiography? Well, one, one of the things that comes to mind for me uh, is William Faulkner's uh, adage, the past is never dead. It's not even past. And in thinking about that, it's uh, interestingly in the book Requiem for a Nun. So there you have it. Um, <laughs> but I think this is so important for Catholic health systems, because if we are going to successfully address uh, things like racial health disparities, if we're going to have conversations about social determinants of health, about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace, um, and something that many systems are talking about, belongingness, if we're going to really seriously address those issues, 
how are we going to do that if we don't uh, take a step back into the past and look at how the past is impacting the present? And one thing I also want to add to what Therese mentioned earlier, there, students who undertook this work in the class were concerned about their place in their health system and the pushback that they were getting. And it's one reason why we de-identified student researchers and the health systems that they worked for, which I think tells you how important this work is, but also how explosive that it can be. So I think that's an important thing to remember and to it, it signals how important this work is. Um, another thing I wanna mention is that all health systems and their individual hospitals, they share a history with their local communities and with their founding religious orders. And those founders stories are shared with every associate and with the communities that they serve. So how truthful is that history if racism as a, a category of analysis and a category for discussion is left out. So my last question that I want to bring Betsy in uh, as we wrap things up is for those health systems that have done the work writing these types of biographies, how do they act on it? Do you have any tips for saying, okay, you discovered this, you're, you're bringing that forth, but how does that inform, again, the work of the present day? And do you have any tips on that? I think the tips I would offer would... Um maybe be three. One, again, it's about leadership, right? You have so system leadership has to be behind this um, and has to communicate the message all the way down that this is an important shared task for the organization. A second one is that it's going to take a lot of time. Um, you know, I gave my students like a month and that was highly unrealistic. But you know, especially when we're talking about these larger systems that have, you know, 80, 90 hospitals. These histories have been around for a while. They live in people's minds and bodies and communities um, and ferreting them out, listening carefully is going to take, you know, it's not going to take six months or 12 months. It might take a few years. And I think it's also important, not just in, you know, getting the stories from the community, but also getting stories from associates, people of color and uh, and people who are not of color, right? What is their own uh, doing a little bottom up as well as top down. These these kind of have to work hand in hand uh, in order to create a story that everyone recognizes their participation in. Those would be sort of three starting points. Oh, that's good. Betsy, as you've been listening to this conversation, any reflections? One thing that strikes me about both the article and what um, Sherry and Therese have been saying today is that I do think an exercise like this um, affects the individual. I think it's important to, you sort of, you don't know what you don't know. And so this, um, I think for, for a student or a reader of Health Progress, makes you think about, um, if there's a history here I haven't heard, why haven't I heard it? And what does it mean if I have a little more information? I mean, even, I know even for me it was, you know, we were checking and double checking things because people who are revered in some cases, you know, may have been a segregationist. Or the flip side of that is, um, you know, there were some beautiful stories about people who worked to integrate healthcare systems or hospitals. Um, and that takes courage, especially uh, historically, it took courage. And so um, it, it makes me think about, you know, we can all be shaped by by sort of rethinking where we're at, um, trying to get more information, uh, and taking a stand when we need to take a stand. So 
I think um, that's what I took away from the article, and I hope I hope readers took that away as well. Yeah, and again, the article looking forward, sorry, looking backward to move forward, writing your system's racial autobiography that appeared in the spring 2022 issue of Health Progress. If you haven't read it, highly recommend it. Uh, again, thanks to our two authors of that article, Professor Therese Lysalt from Loyola University in Chicago and Professor. Sherry Bartlett-Brown from Tennessee State University. Thanks to both of you for taking some time to to go a little deeper in the article and, and tell us about how it came about and some of the, uh, the findings from it. So thank you both. You're welcome. Thank you, always, Brian. Always great to talk about it. Nice talking to you all. And Betsy Taylor, editor of Health Progress, always good to be with you. And, and before we do conclude, uh, tell us about the current issue of Health Progress. Sure. The fall issue is just out, and it's uh, looking at care collaborations um, a great number of new and interesting partnerships around the country. Yeah, and you talked about a couple of the articles at the opening, and it is a really good issue. So again, uh, you can find that issue and all issues of Health Progress at chausa.org. And at the top, just click on the Health Progress tab. Uh, and this article that we talked about will be linked on our podcast page. And again, encourage you to read that. So for uh, Betsy, I'm Brian Reardon, your host. This has been another issue or episode, I should say, of Health Calls, the podcast of the Catholic Health Association of the United States. You can find Health Calls anywhere you stream podcasts, Apple, Google, Spotify, and on Simplecast. And we appreciate, as always, Josh Matica for producing this episode and Brian Hartman for engineering it here at Clayton Studios in St. Louis, Missouri. Thanks for listening. <laughs>